0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to in apologetics As always, we're brought to you by you with your support on patreon.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. J.P. Moreland. In case you don't know who he is, um, he's a distinguished professor of philosophy at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in La Morada, California. Where we we're be talking about philosophy of mind, um, so much fun stuff and arguments from consciousness for a soul and how that points to God. So, Dr. Moreland, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Well, Zach, it's really good to be with you and to have this chance to share with your uh, your friends and your audience and uh, you thanks for inviting me
0: yeah, I'm so excited for this conversation, and I do apologize for anyone watching live. Obviously, it looks like the issue's on my end, where I'm just a black screen right now, so I don't know what's going on. We were talking about that um, off-pre-screen, but you can see Dr. Moreland, so um, you do have a little bandage on your face, so I'd be curious if you could tell everyone about like who you are, what you do, and what's going on. Um, yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, uh, J.P. Moreland, I'm a, a professor of philosophy. Uh, in Southern California at Biola University, been there 30 years and uh, privileged to do my Ph.D. under Dallas Willard at USC. I uh, have an undergrad in physical chemistry and a degree in theology as well. So uh, I have a fa- uh, my wife and uh, two married daughters and five grandchildren. Uh, the uh, The little thing on my face is I had a skin cancer uh, that was cut off my face uh this morning and that uh the bandage is to keep your audience from uh, running to the restroom and having to lose a little bit of their lunch here so <laughs>
0: <laughs> well praise god um that the cancer seems to be in remission so um thank you and i'm grateful for that and that you can talk to me today so right. yeah um so we're gonna be talking about uh, philosophy of mind and consciousness and how the soul and does it point to God and all these fun questions. Uh, but I'm curious, just to start off, could you talk a bit about like what got you interested in like philosophy of mind and consciousness and all these exciting things?
1: Yeah, there were there were a couple of things that got me uh, interested in it, uh, and the first one was that I I saw a growing uh, tendency in, in our culture to to just have this uh, view that everything that is real uh, and that we can actually know to be real is physical in some sense. So that uh, we kind of start with the physical world and then we try to see if, gosh, is there anything that's not physical? And I thought that was really wrongheaded. And I thought that one of the clearest places where that was just not true was with regard to consciousness and whatever it is that possesses and unifies consciousness. So I went into this field, first of all, to see if I could uh, push back uh, on kind of a naturalistic materialism or physicalism. Uh, and then I, uh, the second reason was that uh, there are so many things that are important about being a human being uh, that uh, all presuppose that there is a soul of some kind, and uh, if you if you don't view humans that way any longer, then um, it becomes very difficult to justify uh, human rights uh, and a uh, very much value uh, mm-hmm. to a human being just as a complex material object. So those were some of the reasons that got me into this area and it's been an exciting adventure for 30 some years and i've really enjoyed the journey
0: that's great and i look forward to hearing about kind of like the journey and where your work is taken you've done a lot of work you've written books such as like the soul you wrote the um entry in the Blackwell companion of natural theology for like the argument from consciousness so, so much great stuff here that we'll talk about but i think just to start off can we talk about just like what is consciousness because it's such a simple thing because we all experience it but at the same time it's so it seems very hard to like kind of define and kind of like understand what it is so if i was to ask you like what is consciousness
1: yeah good question i think um the the first way to define it is by what is called an ostensive definition and that's to define something by simply pointing to an example of it so you might say well by by the color red i mean that right there pointing to a uh, an apple. Now, one of the interesting things uh, about this act is that uh, a lot of times we define one term in terms of another, like bachelor in terms of unmarried male. Mm-hmm. But we can't keep doing defining words in terms of words because if we do, the words will never, they'll curve back on themselves into a circle or a web and we'll never define anything by the world itself. And so when you get to something basic that you can't define in more basic terms, you just have to ostensibly define it. So consciousness is like this, you're you're been under surgery, you're in the uh, recovery room and suddenly you start uh, smelling uh, medicine, you feel a slight throb in your knee, Uh, you have a thought, I I think I'm home, but I'm not sure. Uh, And then you hear uh, something rustling around and then you feel uh, thirst and desire a drink of water. What is happening is you're regaining consciousness. Mm -hmm. And uh, consciousness consists of sensations, thoughts, beliefs, desires, and acts of a free uh, intentional will. Uh, now if you want to give a characteristic of consciousness, then I would just say this for every conscious state, whether it's a pain state or a, uh, tasting a lemon state or thinking about something for every conscious state, there is a, what it is like to be in that state. So, uh, There is a what it's like to feel pain. That's different than what it is like to taste uh, strawberry ice cream or something. And we know the difference between those two what it's like just by being aware of them. There's a what it's like to be thinking about something or desiring uh, uh, lunch. So consciousness is uh, that for which there is a what it is like to it. Animals have consciousness, and uh, at least uh, fairly far down, uh, you get down to uh, organisms that we're not sure, but uh, earthworms, for example. But uh, that's what consciousness is, and it comes in, like water comes in four, three states, solid, liquid, and gas. There are five states of consciousness, sensations, thoughts, beliefs, desires, and acts of will.
0: Mm, that's so great so um thinking about consciousness kind of going with like your, your basic definition of something thinking about something like what is it like um i think it'd be helpful to talk about like how this is like unexpected given let's say naturalism if there were like was no god and we're in like some sort of like causally closed system because this is something until i started reading more philosophy of mind that i didn't really realize is that if we're in like a physical universe how does this like mental um come about so like can you talk a little bit about like the, the um seeming like craziness of like consciousness coming about in like a, a physical universe if like god did not
1: exist absolutely um suppose that god doesn't exist um that means that throughout the entire history of the universe up until the very first appearance of sentient creatures i don't i don't know uh, where that line is drawn but mm-hmm. there there were No such thing as as feelings or sensations. Uh, There were no thoughts or there's no thinking. There were no beliefs or desires. Nothing had a desire. Mm -hmm. And there were no actions, uh, intentional free actions. Now, all of a sudden, when you start getting sentient beings, especially let's just talk about human persons, presto, Uh, you have beings that that now have something entirely new in the history of the, uh, since the Big Bang, and utterly, utterly unique and different from everything else in the universe. There's nothing at all like it. And you have now consciousness appearing, and uh, it has these characteristics. Now, the problem is that... This, this appears to be getting something out of nothing. Because yeah. if, if matter is what chemistry and physics tells us it is, or neuroscience, uh, and you the history of the world is just uh, starting with matter uh, in different forms, but then rearranging it according to the laws of, of nature into uh, more complicated uh, structural arrangements of matter, up until uh, uh, a- animal bodies and brains, uh, you, you're you not going to get something utterly different popping into existence that wasn't already latent within the matter. So uh, the only way to solve this problem is to go with what's called panpsychism, and that has a lot of different views, but that's the idea that every material object, even an electron, has its own uh, level of consciousness in some sense. So uh, an electron doesn't know it's an electron, but it would have a certain level of, of, of consciousness. So the universe begins with conscious matter. That way you don't have to get consciousness out of nothing uh, when human Persons come into being. The, pro- the problem with panpsychism is, are, there, there are many of them, but two of them in this regard. First of all, conscious states and brain states are contingently connected. To put it differently, when, when my brain has certain neurons firing called C-fibers firing, when those C-fibers fire in my brain, I feel uh, pain. But there is no reason why uh, when those sea fibers fired, I did, wouldn't experience, let's say, uh, the taste of uh, or the smell of a rose or uh, why, there, why there wouldn't be zombies that behaved like we do, but have absolutely no consciousness whatsoever. So the connection is contingent. And that means that the panpsychus starts is, you, is worldview with this contingent brute fact, namely that there, matter is also conscious, it's psycho matter, and you've got two things that are slapped together that didn't have to be slapped together. That then raises the question, you don't want, why do you have a brute fact that mm-hmm. is contingent, that it didn't have to be that way, because if it's contingent, that is it's real, but it didn't have to be, then you can always ask, well, why was that true? The only kind of brute fact that you wanna start, stop with is a necessary being because you can't ask of it what brought it into existence. Let me say one other thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another problem with panpsychism and with just general kind of emergentism, and that is the unity problem. How can you take a collection of little bits of consciousness? or a collection of brute matter, put it together and get a unified single conscious being instead of having a crowd of little conscious things just getting closer together. <laughs> uh, the unity of consciousness is a problem. So my, I say you either have in the beginning were the particles or in the beginning you had the Logos. If you start with mind, Lagos, then how there could be subsequent minds is no problem at all. But if you start with brute matter, it's, it's impossible to explain how just rearranging it is going to give rise to something so utterly unique that it has never occurred uh, up until the, that time. So go right. God is the best explanation for the origin of consciousness.
0: Yeah, this is great. So one thing I'm kind of wondering about here um, is I can see like almost like a grandmopy thinking right now. Um, We're kind of – if you're maybe like some sort of like atheist, you'd have to argue that in some sense um, consciousness is necessary in like a brute fact way, whether it's like attached to panpsychism or there's some sort of like brute fact where consciousness could just kind of like emerge um, and it's necessary. But at the same time, you'd have like maybe like the idea that maybe a skeptic would say, hey, well, you have this idea that there's a mind at the foundation, um, God, and that's necessary. So it seems like we have these two competing theories. Um, they both say consciousness is necessary to a degree. and Like how do, how do we weigh out these two different ideas so how do you kind of respond to that kind of objection
1: right well opi i've actually debated him in the literature on this very question
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh he critiqued my argument for god in the european journal of philosophy of religion and i responded to him and i also responded to him in the journal called faith and philosophy and Opie is is, is basically just mistaken i mean first of all he recommends that maybe some version of physicalism or materialism is true. Well, I, I've already argued in a number of places that that and, and more and more atheists are admitting that consciousness just isn't physical. That's mm-hmm. it just isn't. And it's pretty obvious. But but then he says that the, the maybe the emergence of it is contingent, but so what? We have a lot of uh, emergent properties uh, throughout the universe. And so what's the big deal? Well, I respond by saying, no, we don't. What we have are new structural properties, meaning that if you take hydrogen and oxygen to put it together, we get a new structural arrangement because H2O is arranged in a certain way. But that's not getting a brand new kind of property. That's just Mm -hmm. rearranging the old stuff into a new structure. So the examples of so-called emergent properties are just structural rearrangements. They're not brand new properties. And, and then I argued that if you do have a genuine emergent properties in the world, then the question is can be raised about them as well. Because uh, one of the things an emergent property is defined as is something that in principle is utterly unexpected and predicted if we have an exhaustive knowledge of the physics and the chemistry that underlies it. So they, they're inexplicable scientifically. And uh, so that was another thing. And then uh, I responded to him with another point. But what I'm gonna suggest is that you just can't help yourself to a contingent brute fact like this Mm-hmm. If there is another explanation, if there's another competing theory that actually provides an explanation for that brute fact, especially if that brute fact doesn't is not at home in your worldview. So take a- Opie's atheistic worldview. Let's face it. Consciousness is just not a natural entity in his worldview. Mm-hmm. If, if you had of an understanding of the Big Bang and, and what happened, you would never in a million years predict that consciousness would ever appear. So consciousness is a very bizarre entity for the atheist and they have to do ad hoc explanations to kind of shoehorn it on their worldview. We don't, consciousness fits like a hand in a glove in a theistic worldview. Well, they can't then just announce that this is a contingent-proof fact when when it doesn't fit the rest of their ontology, but it does fit their rival theory's ontology, namely the theist's ontology. That is the worst kind of begging the question that you can find when you have to slap on something that isn't natural to your view, but is actually much more at home in your opponent's worldview.
0: Yeah, this is, this is great. Um, and I think it's talking about like contingent brute facts, which seem to offer a lot um less explanatory depth than like a necessary um foundation like god would in terms of explaining things like consciousness i do want to talk with you for a second about physicalism because i do um it's obviously seems like it's fading away um you know like there's atheist philosophers like david chalmers or recently i heard like philippe leon is isn't a physicalist anymore or maybe never was but uh, people are rescinding away from physicalism But there's a lot of physicalists out there especially in like the online community where we just kind of assume like we have a brain and then there's consciousness it's just kind of like consciousness can emerge from a brain through maybe like evolution or some other process um so what are some of the like main issues that you see with physicalism um in terms of like philosophy of mind
1: well um first of all to say something emerges is not an explanation it's actually just a name for the thing that needs to be explained so when you say well it just emerges well the question the, the question is How could it have done such? (laughs) Mm, Yeah, yeah. Well, it just you know, just saying it's emergent is just amounts to saying it just did, and that's all. Well, Mm. uh, that is not very. That's not an argument. It's just a name for the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the, there are a whole cottage industry of different versions of physicalism. But what they all leave out uh, when we're speaking about consciousness is that physical states brain states don't have the same properties as conscious states do for example like I said uh, conscious states have a sentience or a a, a a qualia or a what it's like to them but there's no there's no material state that, that has a what it's like to be a quark or what it's like to be negative charge. Mm. It's just it's not even intelligible. Yeah. Uh, some uh, Most mental states have what's called intentionality. They're of or about something. So I have a sensation of the lamp, a thought about London, a belief about uh, uh, multiplication, uh, a desire about or for ice cream and so on. But no brain state is about anything. Brain states can't be true or false, but conscious thoughts and beliefs can. Uh, Again, uh, thoughts don't have geometrical properties. I mean, a thought doesn't have a size and a shape. I don't know what sense it makes to say, is your thought that two and two is four bigger than your thought that cats are mammals? and, and, And is it closer to your left ear or right ear? Where is it? Uh, th- there's a category fallacy going on there. You just, this is a wrong, wrong category. But the brain state that's associated with that does have a, a geometrical shape and location. So there are all kinds of things that uh, consciousness has that brain states don't. And so my conscious states just can't be reduced in one way or another to to, to brain states or body movements or what have you. So uh, I would say the reason that people are misled about this is that the real issues about what is consciousness and what possesses consciousness Mm -hmm. are not scientific, but they're philosophical. And they have the idea that somehow neuroscience has pretty heavily weighed in uh, on the fact that we are our brains and consciousness is just a brain state of some kind. Uh, But that's just obviously false Uh, and, and here's why. I was invited a few years ago by a research biologist I did not know to give a lecture at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And I spoke to about 130 neuroscientists and biologists and research, scientific researchers. And I argued that uh, what neuroscience does a good job of establishing correlations between mental and brain states and dependency relationships so that if something happens to my brain, I can't have a memory, let's say. But when it comes to the question of what is consciousness and what has it, uh, neuroscience cannot comment on that because those are not scientific questions. And to illustrate it, I did the following. Um, We know that mirror neurons are associated with our ability to feel empathy. So that if your mirror neurons are firing in your brain, you can feel empathy. If they're damaged, you can't. All right, now how do you explain that? How does damage in the mirror neurons keep us from being able to feel empathy? Well, there are three empirically equivalent explanations. By empirically equivalent, I mean that they're consistent with exactly the same set of observational data. There's not one observation that favors one of these three over the other. They are equivalent with all and only the same observational data. The first one is what we might call stricter type identity physicalism, and that's the idea that the feeling of of empathy is is identical to or nothing more or less than the firing of mirror neurons. That's theory number one. Theory number two says, no, uh, this is called property dualism. No, that's not true. A feeling of uh, empathy has a what it's like to it and it's about someone and the firing of mirror neurons aren't that way. But there's a cause-effect relationship between the two. So the firing of a mirror neuron causes the feeling of empathy. And if the mirror neurons don't fire, you can't have that. The cause is absent, so you won't experience the effect. Now, both the firing of mirror neurons and the feeling of empathy, though, occur in the brain. The third hypothesis is that the firing of mirror neurons take place in the brain, a feeling of empathy takes place in the self or the I or the ego or soul. And there is a cause effect relationship between brain and soul. So that if your neurons won't fire in the brain, that has a causal effect on the soul's ability to feel empathy. Now neuroscience can say nothing about which of those three is true. It just can't comment on it. It's a metaphysical dispute. And I think there are a number of reasons to believe the third option rather than the others. So in summary, uh, I think a lot of people are misled by pop media and comments that neuroscientists have done A, B, and C. When the fact of the matter is people, most people in my field that are professional philosophers know that's not the case. Hmm.
0: So this is one thing I was just thinking about, and I actually um, heard from a skeptic today. Is this idea that with like fMRI studies, they can kind of look in and check in at like neurons, and they can see like neurons moving a w- certain way, and they can like predict like kind of like what thoughts or decisions someone might make. So it seems like that like consciousness is just like totally determined by like the firing of neurons in the brain. Um, so you talked a little bit about like the issue um, that it kind of comes with this theory, but specifically with like fMRI studies and such, like disproving. Um, like the soul and things like that? Like, how do you respond to that kind of counter-argument?
1: Well, it's just an ignorant statement. Uh, I don't mean to be mean-spirited. We're all ignorant of a lot of things. I don't know much about stock market, but mm-hmm. it just, it's based on an ignorance of what's going on. Now, let me let me explain. Conscious states, like my thoughts, for example, are things to which I have private access. That means mm-hmm. I have a way of knowing what's going on inside myself what I'm feeling and thinking or, or worrying about, that is not available to anybody else. Mm-hmm. The only way they can know what's going on inside of me is by asking me or observing my bodily movements of some kind. Uh, that, 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 so that all physical states, like uh, the shape of a statue or a brain state, is publicly available to all of us. We all have equal access to knowing what that state is if we have the right equipment and know how to use it. But mm-hmm. conscious states are not publicly accessible. I, the person having the conscious state is the only one that has direct access to it. Now other people have indirect access to my conscious states. Like I said, by me report giving a verbal report, of what I'm thinking about, or am I, uh, I'm giving body language that is pain language, body movements. Now, <clears throat> what, what neuroscientists can do then? I mean, take rapid eye movement. What does rapid eye movement tell us? Well, it tells us a person's dreaming, right? How do we know that? Well, because when they will observe people in, in, in the lab sleeping, And their eyes started moving rapidly. They woke them up and asked them what was going on. Mm. And they reported that they were having a specific kind of dream. Why did they have to wake them up? Because they didn't have access to what was going on in their consciousness. The only thing they could measure was the brain state. So over the years, you could come up with a chart. And the chart would include a mental state and a brain state. And so... These would be correlated. So you could say that generally speaking, when a person is in this brain state, uh, they'll be in this mental state and, and conversely. But now the question is, how would you be able to generate that chart? And there's only one way to do it. And that would be that you would register the brain states on the chart. And each time a brain state a unique brain state took place, you would have to ask the person what conscious state they were in. Mm-hmm. Now, if you did that 10,000 times, you'd come up with a graph or a chart where you could pretty much look at a brain state and have a good idea of the conscious state because you had done repeatedly asked the person. So then you could... Predict, Although it's, uh, I will tell you, it's not 100% um, for a number of reasons. This, these are generally, for the most part, correlations. They're certainly not strict correlations. I have no idea how anybody could ever tell that the brain state was in the same state it was at some other time. There are billions and trillions of neurons that are involved. And there's no way that can be measured. So they have a rough and ready correlation. And so when we put somebody in an MRI and we observe uh, a process of brain states, we can look on our little ch- table and say, well, those brain states are usually associated with the following mental or conscious states because we've asked a lot of people. And so we can, we can do that. And so that he, this skeptic is correct, but they're failing to see that the ability to do that depends on a commitment to dualism regarding mm-hmm. consciousness because they, the patient to create the chart that allows them to make that prediction required them to repeatedly ask people what their consciousness was because there was no other way of knowing about it. It was privately accessible but brain states aren't. And so the argument actually backfires into an argument that consciousness is non-physical.
0: That's great. Um, So I want to get into kind of like your views on like what this all means with like consciousness and stuff. We talked about like like issues with physicalism fMRIs and all this fun stuff. Um, But you would hold to a a form of dualism. So could you talk a little bit about like what dualism is and how this answers like the problem of consciousness and such?
1: Yes. I I, I think, I'm, I'm what's called a, a, a property or conscious dualist because that means I don't think – I think consciousness is immaterial, not physical, because there are things true of it that isn't true of anything physical, so they can't be the same thing, however much they depend on one another. And then I believe that there has to be a simple soul. Now, what I mean by a soul is uh, a spiritual or immaterial substance or thing that – that has and unifies consciousness and animates the body. Let me say it again, a soul is an immaterial or spiritual substance or thing that has and unifies consciousness and animates the body. Now there are a ton of reasons why I believe this, but one of them is free will. Um, I believe we all exercise what's called libertarian freedom that if I do something, I could have refrained, and it was up to me. If that's true, I can't be a material object, because material objects uh, are determined by the laws of nature and the previous state of, of the universe at the time of, of the event happening, or at least the the probabilities or chances of the next event happening are fixed by the earlier, if we take quantum Physics to be ontologically indeterminate, but but that is but bo- that's both determinism in a real sense. Plus, it, it's it's uh, what we might call, if we're material objects, say we're our brains or bodies, then you get part-to-whole determinism instead of through time determinism. And by part-to-whole, I mean, according to the physicalist, the behavior of ordinary-sized objects is determined by their the, the behavior of their microphysical parts, so it's bottom-up determinism, and uh, so only if we have, if we're something other than matter, that is able to transcend matter and act by its own power, could there be free will. Another thing is uh, the unity of consciousness. Um, brains and bodies are divisible, but human persons aren't. They're all or nothing. We can gain functioning and lose it, but I have no idea what it means to say there is 80% of a person over there. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Persons are either present or they're not present. They're not divisible, but the brain is. There there is a syndrome called Dandy-Walker syndrome, where there are patients that have 10% of a brain. It's a Mm -hmm. little sheath. Uh, very thin sheath around the inside of the skull. The entire inside of their cranium is a sack of fluid. Hmm. These people have 10% of a brain, but they function about 75 to 80% like normal people. Well, if I'm my brain, then I'm not a person. I'm a 10% person uh, because I have 10% of a functioning brain. Um, So you can talk about divisibility, uh, you can talk about the fact that I can remain the same person, even though my body gains and loses parts, which means that it's constantly in flux. Uh, One other thing, uh, disembodied existence in an afterlife, even if it's false, is surely metaphysically possible. If you watch a a show on Dateline NBC about near-death experiences, and if skeptics watch that, just about every time they may say, you know, I think I'm skeptical about all this. I don't believe any of it's true, but I'm willing to let the evidence settle the case. I'll listen to the, the evidence that they give. I'm willing to listen. Um, so uh, I debated uh, Michael Shermer and Victor Stinger and uh, Keith Parsons, and on my side was Gary Habermas and Peter Kreeft, and we debated uh, life after death, and we were talking about near-death experiences, and all of the atheists were willing to let the evidence settle the issue, and they all argued that near that life after disembodied life after death is not. Uh, does not happen because uh, there's no good evidence to believe it. But now look at what they were doing and look what people who watch Dateline NBC are doing. They're willing to admit that this might be true, that it's at least possibly true. And that's why they're willing to let the evidence settle it. Now contrast that with the following. Suppose a show came on Dateline NBC about, a group of archaeologists working in Montana had discovered, 10 feet under the ground, square circles. Hmm. Uh, Nobody's going to watch that because they don't need to look at the evidence. They know ahead of time that they didn't because it's not even possible. Am I making sense to you? Yeah. Okay. So if I am the kind of thing that at least it's possible, maybe not actual, but possible, Mm That I could survive in a, uh, disembodied without my brain and body, I can't be my brain and body because mm-hmm. there is because there's something true of me. I have the property of being possibly disembodied, where my brain and body are not even possibly disembodied. I don't know what it means to say there is a body that's that's not a body <laughs> or mm-hmm. a brain yeah. not not physical. So uh, my brain and body are not possibly disembodiable. I am so I can't be my brain and body. I must be something that could exist without matter if I'm possibly disembodiable that means I must be some kind of a unified soul. Remember none of this assumes that uh, that life after death is actually real. it simply assumes that it's it's metaphysically possible.
0: Mm. I I have one more question for you and then we'll open up to a live Q&A so we'll get through as many questions as we can in um in a little bit of time but the last question I have for you is kind of like one of the more common objections to dualism is the idea of the mind being dependent on the brain. Um, you know, they we could argue that like if there's a change in the physical states, whether it's brain damage or something else along those lines, there's also a change in the mental state. So the mind would be dependent on the brain. Um, yeah. And I think you could use it to argue for some sort of like eliminatedism or something along those yeah. lines. So how would you sure. respond to that kind of objection?
1: Right. Well, some people say, well, mental states depend on brain states. And so, you know, therefore they are the same. Well, it mm-hmm. doesn't follow if A's depends on B, that A' is the same thing as B. Number one, uh, that requires further argumentation. So um, dependency is not identity. Dependency doesn't mean sameness. Number two, uh, we know as a fact that not only is our mental states dependent on brain states, but it's the other way around. Uh, they have demonstrated that if you take a brain scan of somebody with an obsessive compulsive uh, disorder and they have a lot of anxiety and you look at the brain scan and you can see regions where the neurons are wired in a certain way and you tell the person to change the content of their thoughts for two to three weeks. So mm-hmm. it's they start pondering uh, semantic meanings like I'm not going to die if I don't wash my hands a hundred times a day. Hey, look, uh, my hands aren't that dirty. It's no big deal. After three weeks, their mental contents of their thoughts has rewired their brains. Mm. And so it's, there's also mental to brain dependency. And by the way, if there weren't, again, there would be absolutely no free agency. There would be no basis of blaming or praising anyone because if all the actions or mental thoughts I had were completely dependent on and determined by my brain states, then they're not up to me. I'm a, I'm a passive bystander uh, in these things. So the dependency goes both ways. It is not just one way.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So what we'll do now um, is we'll go to a little bit of live Q&A and we'll answer those for a little bit before we wrap things up here. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Moreland. Um, From um, from Callum S., another very common objection to dualism is the idea of the interaction problem, the idea of how can um, this immaterial mind interact with like the physical brain. So how would you respond to the interaction
1: problem, Dr. Moreland? Yes. Uh, The first thing I do is I would ask, what does it, what is the question, how can they interact, mean? Now, it can mean one of two things. It can mean the request for a mechanism that connects the two together. So, for example, if I said, how does turning on the the, the, the ignition in a car cause the uh, shafts to begin uh, to, to move up and down? Well... My answer would be to cite an intervening mechanism that that connects the the turning on of that key through this mechanism to the uh, shafts moving around, okay? So a how question can be a request for an intervening mechanism. Now the problem is this. Suppose that A causes B through some intervening mechanism, all right? But now what about the relationship between A and that intervening mechanism? Is there a mechanism that connects A to the mechanism? Well, if there is, you see where this is going. You're going to have to stop the regress at some point where causation is what, what philosophers call basic and immediate. It, it it does not it is not done by through some intermediate intervening state of some kind. I believe that the causal connection between uh, mental states and brain states is basic and immediate. There just is no intervening mechanism. It occurs directly. Uh, So uh, if that's what the how question means, it's just an utterly, it's a mistaken question. It, 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 It cannot be asked in this case. It can only be asked of cases where there is an intervening mechanism and here we don't have one. Now, the the question of how can they interact might be just an expression of skeptical exasperation. How in the world could this happen? Now, why would people be exasperated? Well, they might think that because they're so different that it's hard to depict how, how, it's hard to understand how such radically different things could causally interact. But now, in order for that question to have any punch, you've got to justify the idea that before A can causally interact with B, A has to be like B. And we have all kinds of counterexamples to that. I mean, in the history of science, there have been all kinds of examples of where forces have interacted on particles, where uh, fields understood as nothing but waves have interacted on pieces of stuff. Uh, And I could go on and on and on. Uh, So there's really no good reason to believe that uh, two things can causally interact only if they're like one another. So I think the how question, either as a request for a mechanism or as an expression of skeptical exasperation, Fails Now, there's a third thing it might be, and that might be what, what many uh, mean by it today, and that is when you ask how could the mental states and brain states causally interact, what you're worried about are violations of the first law of the conservation of mass and energy. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying, well, surely if the mental causes something to happen in the physical realm, It's going to do work on the physical realm, okay? And to do that, there's got to be an an out, a release of some kind of energy. But that seems to be creating energy ex nihilo or out of nothing. So the interaction problem is now one that it seems to violate the, the conservation of mass energy. Two quick responses to that. Number one, the conservation law is only defined by physical For physically closed systems. Mm. Uh, It it, it is not defined for systems for which there is an outside injection of new energy into the system, whether that's energy from some other physical source or not. Mm. If you're looking at a system and it gets energy from outside, then that system has an increase in energy. So the conservation law only applies to closed systems. And the dualist is gonna say that the brain and the body are not closed systems. There is an outside influence on it, namely the mind or the ego or soul. So one would dispute that. Somebody would might say, well, if that's true, we ought to be able to detect the energy. Well, mm-hmm. it may, maybe not. It could very well be that the little amount of energy that the soul uh, contributes is kind of like the energy that takes to flip the switch at Hoover Dam to release all of the energy that's stored up by the water uh, as the dam r- raises. Uh, y- it would be hard to measure that tiny bit of energy that flipped the switch compared to the, a massive amount of energy of that water flowing out of that lake. Thus, it, it could be that that our, uh, Exercises of uh, mental causation are what we might call trigger events. They trigger the release of potential energy in the brain, and that overwhelms the tiny amount of energy it takes to trigger it. But there's a third response, and I'll make it quick. And that has to do with quantum entanglement. And that's where you might shoot two particle uh, uh, two particles that are that are correlated in opposite directions, such that uh, one can only spin in one direction and the other spins in the opposite direction. So you have sort of a conservation of uh, uh, angular momentum. Now, what we've learned is that measuring one of those causes the other one to be in the state it's in. So what if you measure the the one that went to the left and it's spinning in one direction, the other one, it will always be spinning in the opposite direction. And the best way of explaining that is that that the the measuring the one it, it causes the other one to be in the direction it is. The problem is that the objects are too far away, given the time, for there to be an exchange of energy. So this is considered to be an example of causal interaction where there is no energy exchange. It could well be that the soul's operation on the brain and body are a form of causation that does not involve any uh, release of new energy like quantum entanglement.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to kind of walk through the interaction problem here. Another question for Derek Smith um, is a question concerning the problem of abortion. Um, and they asked many pro-choice advocates point to consciousness as the qualifier for personhood, but typically fail to define it properly. Um, how would you kind of respond to consciousness being like the qualifier for personhood in like the abortion debate?
1: Well, I hope it's wrong because if you're in surgery, you go out of existence mm. uh, and, you, and people could Euthanize you or do anything they want, take your organs out and give them away because you're no longer a person. Um, I think the mistake that's being made here is twofold. The first is I would not limit the person, uh, the appearance of a soul to consciousness. I would add uh, it, that the soul contains consciousness, but also uh, it contains the powers of life. Uh, uh, that animate the, something and make it living. So uh, whenever you have evidence that there is a new living thing that is its own living organism, even if it might split and twin later, like star, an adult starfish is its own living thing, but it can be broken up into pieces and they can create new starfish. So I don't care if the uh, up until the first two or three weeks, uh, the, the cells that constitute the living human person could split into uh, two different persons. That doesn't mean it's not a person any more than the starfish case. So my, my question is, when is there evidence that you have a living being that has its own principle of life in it? That's clearly at conception. So I would argue that we should expand consciousness to include animated or living, and when we do that, it becomes clear that at conception you have a brand new living entity. The other thing I would say would be this: uh, when we're dealing with life and uh, consciousness, it isn't the it isn't the possession of these things, but it is the ultimate potentiality to have them. So for example I have the potential to speak English. I don't have the potential to speak German, but I have the potential to develop that potential by studying it. I might have the potential to develop the potential to develop the potential to speak German. So ultimately this has to stop and I have a set of ultimate capacities or potentials That I have simply in virtue of the kind of thing I am, Mm. Uh, uh, you know, a a, a, a tomato seed doesn't have the ultimate potential for consciousness, but a fertilized egg does. Now, it's the it it is not the actual first order potential for consciousness that matters. Uh, It's not. It it is the ultimate capacity to realize that first order capacity to be consciousness, to be conscious, that makes me what I am. So it is, it is it, my, uh, my causal powers are part of what constitute me as a human person, whether they have been actualized or not. And I would suggest that a fertilized egg already has all of the capacities, the ultimate capacities or powers for consciousness to develop. Now suppose there is a defect, uh, so that the child is never going to be able to realize consciousness. They still have the ultimate power to, to actualize consciousness, but there is a blockage that it is not able to overcome in order to achieve actualization. the being that, So that a baby like that in the womb still has the ultimate powers of consciousness, but because of birth defects or uh, whatever it might be, they're not able to actualize it. If that defect can be removed, well then their power of consciousness could ultimately be realized. Through actualization. So I would mm-hmm. say that expand the definition to include life. And let's not talk about the first order ability to be conscious on the spot, but the ultimate by nature ability, built uh, power to develop the power, to develop the power to be conscious.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and that's well, all the time we'll have for QA. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. morland I really appreciate it and all the work you've done with like the argument from consciousness. Um is it because- <laughs> Like last thoughts, anything you want to say before we start to wrap things up here?
1: Well, just be very careful that you don't absorb what our elite, even scientific culture tells us. Um, We have to believe in order to be reasonable. They may be right, but they may not be right. And as Christians, I uh, I am unwilling to give up territory and just roll over and play dead. Unless I've looked into it and have good reason to believe that that this point is correct, but don't don't be quick to give up real estate. Uh, in my 50 years as a believer, I've 52 years. I've learned it just isn't. Most of the time, it's just not necessary.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moreland, for your time. I appreciate it. I thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'm sorry that my camera wasn't working today. I had no idea that would happen, um, but here we are, so thank you so much. Uh, I'd encourage you, you can follow um, Dr. Moreland and his website be- down below. You can get to that, see lots of great books and other content that Dr. Moreland's produced. And if you're new to hearing Apologetics, I encourage you to subscribe, uh, leave a like, and a review on your way out. Really appreciate you guys' support. And if you enjoy us, you can support us on patreon.com, such so as you're hearing Apologetics. We're close to 90% funded, so you your support means a lot. You can chip in and every little bit helps. But Dr. Moreland, thank you so much for your time. Once again, I really appreciate it. It's been my privilege.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you, Arvin, for tuning in. God bless.